0: welcome to the amazing nerd show now tracking santa strap in folks the nerds have arrived bringing you the ultimate nerd podcast nerds the worlds of gaming horror tv and film have collided right here this will be your finest hour
1: hey this is christian hey this is Damon. and this is the amazing nerd show Happy holidays from me and Damon. This week we're gonna be taking off, you know, to spend some time with our families. But of course, we didn't want to leave you guys hanging. So we're doing a flashback episode featuring our director spotlights for Quentin Tarantino and Steven Spielberg. A lot of news has also dropped this week, so we will be getting you guys caught up on next week's episode. But in the meantime, if you want to check us out on social media at Amazing Nerd Show, that's where we post all the articles for everything we talk about on the show, especially on Facebook. But with that said, let's get you nerds into the holiday spirit with a flashback to damon and i's christmas go to
0: archive access granted now playing the nerds holiday go to list
2: Christian, Merry Christmas, man. Yeah,
1: happy holidays.
2: I mean, this week is really our last episode before Christmas. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've been in like full Christmassy mode. I mean, it's definitely been difficult, like in the middle of a fucking pandemic. But me and my family are doing the best to like keep the spirit alive and kicking, uh, which for us means like plenty of holiday movies. Are you a Christmas movie guy?
1: uh yes and no you know i i like holiday movies for what they are but I, it has to usually be on christmas when you're i watch such them. a fucking grinch man <laughs> i know you're asking I, scrooge I, if he loves holidays. i, I know so <laughs> like i even scrooge eventually grew a heart right all right well what are your go-tos well um absolutely i definitely watch a christmas story every single year just because it's marathoning usually fucking like yes. on tnt or something no
2: i agree 100 that's one of my go-tos too um Honestly, on Christmas Day, that's usually what's on the screen. So, I mean, you don't have to think about it. It's just there. And I don't think there's a better movie that really, like, captures the essence Uh of being, like, young during Christmas time. So, I 100% agree. I actually ended up visiting the Christmas Story house. Um, It's in Cleveland. Oh, nice. Uh, We're on the way to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and Hmm. it, like, popped up on like Google, you know? So we're like, what the hell, why not? It was the middle of June and the thing was jam packed. Oh wow. Like it was tourist central. Uh, They have a gift shop, which is actually bigger than the house across the street. (laughs) So, but it's like a full fledged museum that you could actually rent out during Christmas time and stay there. Like you could actually spend Christmas Eve in the Christmas story house.
1: God, that's gonna cost a lot
2: <laughs> I can't even I can't even imagine but they must be making a pretty penny because like I said it was June. and that like it was a line to take the tour so uh, but yeah no that's one of my go-to's uh what else is on your list
1: um you know surprisingly enough and people hear me say this all the time you know I actually watched most of the Star Wars movies during December I really love watching Star Wars during this time of year I don't know why I, I don't know it's just because they've released a bunch the last few years or what yeah, so no, I mean, always that- been
2: That's fair. I mean there's Uh definitely (laughs) things that I love during this season just because it reminds me of the season, not because it's actually like has anything to do with the season. For some Uh reason, (laughs) I'm a I'm an old school metalhead. I love listening to Megadeth's Rust in Peace. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> during December <laughs> just because it's when I got the CD it was like one of my first like CDs so I don't know I consider almost Christmas music <laughs> <laughs> hey
1: I, I dig it <laughs> um,
2: but that's just me but I, I totally uh, get it you know Chris now you know actually the past decade really right I mean I, I agree like
1: Christmas Star Wars why the fuck not right Exactly. Um, Another thing that gets marathoned a lot during this time of year is James Bond. So I'll start watching like old um, James Bond films. Speaking of films that like have nothing to do with Christmas,
2: but Uh are always on around this time of year. At least they used to be. I don't know if that's the case anymore. But um, uh, Wizard of Oz and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Mm -hmm. Like those were always like go to movies, you know, uh, back in the day. I don't know if they still do it. But, like, I associate those movies with Christmas because of that. So I,
1: I totally get it, man. All right. So what else is on your list? Uh, Well, I got to put Die Hard out there, right? That's, yeah. that's definitely that's the, the Christmas go-to. movie. <laughs> you know, for me, it's not.
2: Like, I, I consider it a Christmas movie just because of the backdrop. Uh-huh. Like, I consider Trading Places a Christmas movie, too. Um, But, like, it's not something I always seek out during the season. Uh-huh. Um, But, you know, I, I get it, man. Like, I always have to watch Gremlins. During December oh, yeah, too, yeah. <laughs> but I, I was feel wondering. like I feel like that's more of a Christmas movie than Die Hard even. Yeah, because he literally gets you know Gizmo for uh-huh. Christmas from his dad. So, um, you know, so I really get pissed off when people like ask me like, whether or not that's a Christmas movie. It's like it's a fucking Christmas movie. There's no way it's not. You mm. know, the Gremlins are literally caroling in that film. So. Um, but anyway, I, I won't rant and rave it. Like I have a, on the horror fronts, I mean, for me, like I've got a list. I think we actually did a countdown at one point um, in the show's history. But like Black Christmas, Silent mm-hmm. Night, Deadly Night, uh, Gremlins, Krampus, uh, Inside, because nothing says you know Merry Christmas like you know. An unborn fetus getting ripped out of a mother's, you know,
1: stomach.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Once again, I'm a little fucked up.
1: But uh-huh. <laughs>
2: <laughs> a little, he says. Uh, I, like, uh, <laughs> I love anything rankin bass, uh, uh, a Christmas Carol, uh, with George C. Scott or or Patrick Stewart. I could, you know, trade him off. Uh, and then uh, of course, it's a wonderful life. I'm a fucking big
1: sap when it comes to it's a wonderful life. Um, you remember that I brought up Hook before? <laughs> that's that's right. That's uh-huh. right. I love what, what was the reasoning behind Hook? Like you considering that a Christmas movie? Well, does... it does start in Christmas. It, um, in that film, oh, it's like Christmas that's time. Right, the very beginning. Right. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. That's fair. I kind of uh, <laughs> one that um, I know that is a terrible movie, and I just love it for the jokes in general. Is Jingle All the Way with Arnold? I've As never seen that movie figure.
2: all the way through, and I actually tried to watch it last <laughs> year, and like I could only handle maybe ten minutes of Sinbad, and I was done. I was like, I can't. I've got, I've got to walk away.
1: The movie's a fucking classic, man. You gotta sit through it all.
2: <laughs> I don't know. That's like mid
1: '90s, I think. Uh huh. Right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I missed that in the initial release, so I, it was never, you know, a, a go-to for me. Do you do the Tim Allen? movie? What is that? Uh, Santa Claus or whatever? Oh, no.
1: I, I kind of hate that movie for some reason. Yeah, man. That Tim allen just
2: got weird. <laughs> and Tim Allen seems kind of a bit of a douchebag, so uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that seems to be a recent thing, so I don't know. I'm just, I, I've always been kind of turned off by that movie, and they did like, I think five too many. Uh-huh. So, uh, but yeah, no, I, I I'm not necessarily a fan. I don't think I've seen that one all the way through either, so.
1: You, you guys don't do Home Alone? Oh, yeah. No, we do Home Alone okay so
2: um you know but i was actually late to the party with home alone i was not a huge fan of that movie when i was younger um and then i think it's just because like macaulay culkin was like on the cover of all the like you know teen magazines and shit like that so i was kind of like turned (laughs) off by it um and then like later on i ended up like coming to love that film so yeah no home alone's definitely on the playlist
1: uh, and then I definitely watch um, Grinch with Jim Carrey all the time. That's just too terrifying, even for me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Something about the makeup just disturb, can, disturbs me. You can me. watch I a don't...
1: fetus get ripped out of a womb, <laughs> but, but Grinch with Jim Carrey too much. I don't
2: know, man. I remember watching an interview and him talking about the makeup process and like wearing all that mm-hmm. shit like, you know, for hours and how he had to actually get training by, like, torture experts, like how to, okay. like, get through the day, <laughs> like, you know, little tricks and shit, you know, people who actually gone through, like, serious torture. Jesus. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I just every time I see that, you know, him in that, you know, costume, that visual, I just think about, like, how much pain he's in. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I, I'm not
1: a fan of that. I, I love the original, though. Uh, speaking of old school like like I, I'm talking nineteen seventies, uh a year without Santa Claus with uh Heath yes. Miser. Yes. I love watching that's that. That's
2: Rankin Bass, man. I, I could oh, do okay. Rankin Bass all the fucking time. That <laughs> they do I mean they do Rudolph and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, like the creepy, you know, stop motion. Uh that that's my childhood right there. Uh-huh. So uh Charlie Brown, obviously. Uh you know, Garfield. Garfield had some classic Classic holiday specials back in the day, so but that's before your time. Uh huh. <laughs> you know, I think they still. I think Amazon Prime actually has like a collection of them right now. Check those oh, I'm out. Sure. But they always yeah. have weird collections. I love me some Garfield, man. Don't blaspheme. Me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that fat cat. <laughs> well, with this next one, I'm tapping out. Uh, Scrooged. No, Scrooge is definitely a classic.
2: I agree, 100. percent Um, That's not one that I seek out, but if it's on TV, I always stop and watch the whole thing. Absolutely. So, uh, but like my go-to, and I think I mentioned it before, but Christmas Vacation is probably like my favorite Christmas movie of all time, bar none. I still laugh at every fucking Uh. one-liner. Uh, but yeah, no Christmas vacation all the way.
1: I think that one just has humor that you could watch at any time of the year anyway. Either yes. way.
2: <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've watched it like not in December. So uh-huh. I agree hundred percent.
0: Now accessing artist spotlight data for Quentin Tarantino.
2: She's reviewing Godard's movie and she says, it's as if a couple of movie crazy young French, young Frenchmen or in a coffee coffee house and they've taken a banal American crime novel and they're making a movie out of it based not on the novel, but on the poetry that they read between the lines. And when I read that, I was like, that's my aesthetic. That's what I want to do. That is what I want to achieve. This groundbreaking filmmaker has made a name for himself as the king of pastiche. His passion for genre films, paired with his ingenuity as a storyteller and his rich, unforgettable dialogue is what makes him one of the most important film directors over the past three decades. His sense of style is unparalleled. You could turn on any one of his movies and within frames, you know it's a Tarantino film. He is a way of paying homage to the litany of films that have inspired him without it ever feeling too derivative. And because he takes genre so seriously, his films have become almost a gateway for film buffs to discover their true magic and importance. These reasons plus a whole lot more that we'll discuss throughout the month is why we chose the one and only Quentin Tarantino for our artist spotlight.
3: Now presenting the top five Quentin Tarantino characters. Number five Cliff Booth, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We get into a fight, I accidentally kill you,
0: I go to jail. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. And I think all that lethal weapon horse shit is just an excuse so you dancers never have to get in a real fight.
1: Cliff Booth is one of Tarantino's latest creations, as played by Brad Pitt in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The character was loosely inspired by 1971's Billy Jack, and like Billy Jack, Booth has had a past of violence uh, he has struggled with and a need for the simple life. Tarantino introduces us to a character that is the go-to counterpart and stuntman for a struggling action hero in Rick Dalton. And even though when Rick struggles, he struggles, Booth remains loyal to his close friends until the end. My earliest assumptions of the character were that he would probably fall into the hands of Charles Manson and turn on Rick Dalton. And even while watching the film, I thought that was what's going to happen to a certain point. But That's just not Cliff Booth. And while he's had a questionable past, at his core, he is a good guy. Booth is a prime example of Tarantino's ability to show off and create a completely genuine and likable character. Even when Booth gets himself into trouble, you can't help but root for the guy.
3: Number four, Hans Landa in Glorious Bastards.
2: Ooh, that's a bingo. (laughs) Is that the way you say it? That's a bingo. You just say bingo.
1: Bingo! How fun!
2: Hans Landa is one of the greatest villains in cinema history. Nicknamed the Jew Hunter, depraved and twisted, he takes a gleeful pride in his work. In the opening scene of *Inglorious Bastards, when he's interrogating the farmer, Christopher Waltz's Cheshire cat-like smile is a window into how sadistic of a character Londo really is. He absolutely is playing with his prey before he pounces, and getting off on every grueling intense moment. But Hans is an ambitious monster, and really only seems to care about his own self-interest. Um, as we learn, he has no real loyalty to the Nazi cause as he is so quick to betray and try to broker a deal that would see him almost hailed as a hero. All this leads to one of the most satisfying conclusions of any Tarantino film with Hans's forehead meeting the end of the bastard's bowie knife in the closing shot.
3: Number three, Mr. Pink, Reservoir Dogs.
1: You know what this is? It's the world's smallest violin playing just for the waitresses.
2: You don't have any idea what you're talking about. These people bust their ass. This is a hard job. So I was working at McDonald's, but you don't feel the need to tip them, do you? Well, why not? They're serving you food. But no, society says, don't tip these guys over here, but tip these guys over here. That's bullshit. Waitressing is the number one occupation for female non-college graduates in this country. It's the one job basically any woman can get and make a living on. The reason is because of their tips. Fuck all that. (laughs) Mr. Pink is a fast-talking, all-business criminal that serves as almost a template for many Tarantino characters to come quick-witted when either arguing his way out of tipping or identifying a setup you're not gonna get one past this hardened criminal he's there for a job and that's that um he might be working with the crew but he's only looking out for number one He's the voice of reason when no one wants to listen, making him feel like he's always one step ahead of everyone else, which is probably why he comes like the closest to actually getting away at the end of the film. Originally supposed to be played by Tarantino himself, Buscemi makes the role his own. His acting chops plus Tarantino's dialogue is the perfect marriage. It's a shame that they haven't actually worked together more.
3: Number two, The Bride, Kill Bill.
0: that what I think it is? You didn't think it was gonna be that easy, did you? You know, for a second there? Yeah, I kinda did. Silly
3: rabbit. Tricks are for kids.
1: Uma Thurman as the bride may be one of the most badass characters in action film history. We follow her through a rampage of pure vengeance as she hunts down the man who tried to kill her and her unborn child. Feeling robbed of her peace and love, she robs those deemed responsible, the deadly viper assassination squad, of their very lives. While showcasing a truly brutal assassin, Tarantino through Uma Thurman's performance still gave us a very human character that still showed that she had a hearts and gave us more than just that of a vengeful spirit she may not be a hero but you can firmly back and support her path of carnage in her quest to kill bill
3: number one jules hope fiction
1: i'm gonna go home
0: just hang in there baby you're doing great i'm proud of you and ringo's proud of you it's almost over tell her you're proud of me proud of you honey bunny i love you i love you too honey bunny now, I want you to go in that
2: bag and find my wallet. Which one is it? It's the one that says bad motherfucker. All right, in my mind, it wasn't even a real debate. Jules had to be number one. Uh, the hitman who has a moment of clarity which leads him on the path to becoming the shepherd. I mean, don't get me wrong, he's still a bad motherfucker. But he is the moral core of Pulp Fiction. Like even with like Vincent chirping in his ear at the end of the film, he allows Honey Bunny and Pumpkin to walk away, and like that really starts his new journey. Um, he's by far for me the most interesting character in Pulp Fiction, and honestly, probably all of Tarantino's films. Uh, you know. It, it only takes a moment, one moment, for his life to be changed and for, like, everyone he comes into contact lives to be changed. Um, this is Samuel Jackson's defining breakout role. Um, It's hard to imagine cinema over the last like 30 years without an actor, the caliber of Samuel Jackson. Um, In my mind, he should be held in the same regard as actors like Jack Nicholson and Robert De Niro. He makes every movie he's in better. And it all
1: really started here. No, you're absolutely right, Damon. Jules feels incredibly unique as a character in the entire Tarantino-verse because of the amazing performance by Samuel L. Jackson. I'd argue that this character is the positive version of Emperor Palpatine, as in every line given by the character is so damn quotable and memorable. I mean, the character has obviously left an impression on me because I've got the same goddamn wallet. You know, the one that says bad motherfucker on it. (laughs) Tarantino struck gold when he got to work with Sam Jackson, and I can't and I won't imagine a world without this perfect performance. For anyone who hasn't watched Pulp Fiction and knows nothing of Jules, I beg you to give it a shot and find out exactly why he is our number one of Tarantino's characters.
0: Now for Tarantino's Best Cinematic Moments.
2: Uh, This episode, we're going to be counting down his top five cinematic moments of all time.
1: That's right, Damon. And while every movie he's had has had tons of great moments, we're only going to do one moment per film, just to be fair. (laughs) All right, let's get into it.
3: Number five, Inglorious Bastards, The Bar Game.
1: Would appear there's only one thing left you to do. And what would that be? See how into your Nazi boss.
2: This scene is just drenched with tension. It takes the standoff from Reservoir Dogs and just puts it into overdrive. The bastards, disguised as German soldiers, are meeting their contact who happens to be a film star in this basement tavern. When a group of drunk Nazis begin to fanboy over her, tension starts to grow as English undercover officer, uh, Michael Fassbender's accent is questioned. Only Tarantino would try to orchestrate a pulse-pounding standoff with 25 pages of fucking dialogue, in German mostly, in the middle of his film. (laughs) The bar starts to physically feel like it's getting smaller as this scene goes on, Brows begin to sweat, guns are drawn underneath the table as everyone tries to keep up the facade of smiling away as they play this friendly game of Guess Who. The audience is forced to white knuckle it through this dizzying display of cat and mouse, alternating between relief and dread throughout this almost 30 minute long scene. Tarantino lets us hang on every word and movement until Fassbender gives himself away and an explosion of violence ensues. No one does a standoff like Quentin Tarantino.
3: Number four, Django Unchained, The Candyland Massacre.
2: You really want me to shake your hand? I insist.
1: If you insist. The Candyland Massacre proceeds after a marvelous and dastardly performance by Leonardo DiCaprio as Calvin Candy. It all kicks off when Calvin looks to stand tall and end the proceedings with one last insult a handshake commemorating the sale of Django's wife, and only to be met with a bullet to the heart from Dr. King Schultz's hidden pistol. What ensues is a satisfying conclusion of pure visceral brilliance from Tarantino as the audience bears witness to one of the bloodiest shootouts in modern cinema. The juxtaposition from the War of minds to the War of Guns on the Candyland Ranch is a true reward and memorable experience for any moviegoer. The performances from the entire cast draw the tension to this nuclear end in beautiful fashion. Django's action sequences often rival the bloody affairs of Kill Bill and keep Tarantino's reputation for blood-soaked cinema alive and well.
3: Number 3. Reservoir Dogs. Mr. Blonde.
2: the mr blonde psychotic dance sequence is the first true shocking moment in tarantino's career and the catalyst of things to come we get a taste of his flair for stylized violence and suspense even though we hear about Mr. Blonde killing innocent bystanders when uh, the heist goes awry, I mean, to the point where, like, the rest of the crew is unnerved, we as an audience are not completely prepared for what happens when Blonde is left alone with a cop that he's taken captive. I mean, Tarantino does a wonderful job of setting this up by making sure Blonde always seems like the coolest guy in the room. Uh, With his sunglasses still on, he barely stops sipping his as Harvey Keitel confronts him. Um, so, like, t- when you get to witness the true sadistic nature of this monster as he starts to dance to one of the best uses of diegetic music of all time, uh, we realize that this has nothing to do with interrogation. Blonde is getting a perverse feeling of pleasure uh, by making this man suffer. Even though Tarantino pans away from this horrific act of like dislodging the cop's ear from his head, it still doesn't lose its grisly effect. I mean, he injects some dark comedy by having Blonde play with the ear like a child with a new toy, but and he kind of lets us up just for a little bit only to put us back on the edge of our seat as we realize more horrors to come as blonde grabs a can of gasoline from his car this ultimately leaves orange to reveal himself um, as the informant to the relief of the audience but then the die is cast for the rest of the film
3: number two kill bill Beatrix versus the crazy 88
1: kill bill is probably one of the hardest tarantino films to pick apart as nearly every moment in the film will stand with you for the test of time whether it's beatrix snatching Elle's eye or the incredible living room knife fight at the beginning of the film kill bill drips with memorable moments but at the end of the day the most notorious sequence in either volume is of course beatrix versus the crazy 88s This scene provides some of the best in katana fight sequences, along with incredible scoring that drives the near 10 minute battle's pacing 0-60 to in rapid succession. It's cinematic gold as so many moments in this scene take different kung fu stylistic choices yet are blended together so smoothly. There's moments of brutality, there's moments of comedy. All handled in balanced to the quality of a Tori Hanzo steel. This scene shows off Tarantino's pure love for classic kung fu pictures. He put on a masterclass that has yet to be surpassed in pacing of a sword fight. This scene truly deserves its placement on our top 5 list and remains near and dear to almost any action film fan.
3: Number 1 Pulp Fiction What does Marcellus Wallace look like?
1: I just want
2: you to
0: know how sorry we are that that things got so fucked up with us and, and Mr. Wallace. We got into this thing with the best intentions, really. I never... Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? I didn't mean to do that. Please, continue. You were saying something about best intentions. What's the matter? Oh, you were finished. Oh Well, allow me to retort.
1: What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What? What country are you from?
0: What? What What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English and what?
2: While this might be the predictable and safest pick on our list, it's absolutely well deserving of our number one slot. Samuel L. Jackson is an absolute force of nature in this scene. Playing both good cop and bad cop, His disarming charm helps make this moment as he goes from talking about freaking burgers to murdering motherfuckers in a matter of seconds. (laughs) The intensity that Jackson displays as he rattles off one of the most iconic monologues in film history makes you feel like Brad as he squirms in his seat in his final moments. Jackson is the perfect vessel for Tarantino's dialogue. You believe every word the actor says as his glare pierces your soul. This is some of Tarantino's finest writing, because not only uh, Brad and his friends' lives change here by ending, um, it's also Jules' old life that dies in this room. In a moment of dark comedy, a divine intervention seems to set Jules on a
1: new path. This scene and performance accomplishes so much in a matter of a few short moments. It defines Jules' character in the past and also sets us out on the journey Jules is going to take throughout the film. It's one of the most successful marriages between script and performance I've ever known. As if this monologue couldn't be done by anyone else other than Samuel L. Jackson, Tarantino knows how to do tension so fucking well. Like Damon said before me, you feel every bit of Brad's fear. You feel every millisecond of this scene. From the moment Jules walks into the apartment, it's go time. Sam Jackson and Tarantino fire this sequence into your brain and blow it away. You can't possibly think of either person without thinking of this unbelievable scene. And that's why it sits here at our number one moment.
0: Now for the Nerds' favorite all-time Tarantino films.
1: All right, so
2: this is our final week for our Artist Spotlight on Quentin Tarantino. Uh, this week, we're going to go ahead and we are going to rank our top five favorite Tarantino films.
3: Number five, Inglorious Bastards.
1: Each and every man under my command owes me 100 Nazi scalps, and I want my scalps.
2: Tarantino's history-altering war film is one of the greatest revenge fantasies ever told. Our journey starts with a young woman barely escaping through a field after her family is slaughtered by Nazi soldiers and ends with the same woman almost single-handedly ending the war as the Nazi party burns in her theater as her haunting image appears on the screen laughing and showing them the face of Jewish vengeance. Talk about fucking epic. All in the same breath, Bastards is also a wonderful homage to war films like The Dirty Dozen. It's a true ensemble cast, filled with unforgettable performances by the likes of Brad Pitt, Christopher Waltz, and Michael Fassbender. But what really takes center stage here is Tarantino's craftsmanship as an artist. He builds some of the best nail-biting scenes ever committed to film, giving us a masterclass in suspense and tension. This is Tarantino's. Tino at the top of his game and why Inglorious Bastards had to make our list.
3: Number four Django Unchained. After this, we'll see if you break eggs again.
0: John
1: One man that understands vengeance stories is Quentin Tarantino, no matter the genre he delivers. Now picture this, a German bounty hunter and a newly freed slave go bounty hunting in an ultimate quest to free the former slave's wife from the clutches of a powerful plantation owner. Django Unchained is a blood-soaked tale of the South that could only be executed by Tarantino, but it wasn't the action of violence that sticks with you the most. And while there is plenty of it, showing off the horrors of slavery and the brutality of a gunfight, it was the well-casted performances from Jamie Foxx, Christoph Waltz, Kerry Washington, Sam Jackson, and Leonardo DiCaprio that allowed this film to stand out brightly amongst our list. Tarantino's solid characterizations and writing backed by these actors is is pure gold and shows not only the range of the talent in both cast and director, but their mastery and tone as every bit of tension is felt between each scene of pure vengeance. This reimagining of the 1966 spaghetti western is exactly the type of big motion picture experience any film goer would want out of a modern day western and continue to show off Tarantino's true love for all cinema.
3: Number three, Reservoir Dogs.
1: Say the goddamn words, you're gonna be okay! Oh, God. Say the goddamn fucking words! Say it! Oh, okay, man. Correct!
2: So it all started here. One of the greatest directorial debuts of all time not only launched the career of this groundbreaking artist, but also revolutionized cinema forever from the very opening scene we meet our characters engage in a conversation that not only displays tarantino's writing prowess but also feels uniquely real the dialogue is filled with pop culture references the banter helps frame who these characters are we feel like we're sitting alongside them in the diner yes this is the introduction to the film's band of thieves but it's also the introduction to the world of tarantino i mean it's the best heist thriller without a fucking heist dog's bare bones approach feels more like a play at times than a film because it knows the real story is what's happening in between the lines with these characters it's all about script and performance after the initial rock star money shot of our cast leaving the diner Dogs doesn't spend another moment really glorifying who these thieves are like so many crime films do instead we watch these characters go down a path of self destruction this is a theme and a staple of many of Tarantino's films this along with trust and loyalty is at the core of what this story is about what's fascinating is how reservoir dogs lays the groundwork for all of Tarantino's hallmarks i mean the non linear storytelling The crisp dialogue, the long tracking shots, the sense of style and violence, and the master use of music. It's all here. This isn't a film. It's a blueprint for things to come.
3: Number two. Kill Bill. Black
2: Mamba.
3: I should have been motherfucking Black Mamba. Weapon of choice. If you want to stick with your butcher knife, that's fine with me.
0: Very funny, bitch. Very funny!
1: I remember watching Kill Bill for like the first time at home. As I was probably too young to see it in theaters, I watched it in pure amazement not being able to peel my eyes from the ravenous cinematic beauty of a revenge tale done right before I even knew who Tarantino was I could tell this was a film experience on a different level the tale of the bride hunting the man who took away her new life is arguably the best action film to come out of the 2000s using techniques and storytelling from his previous features Tarantino crafted a love story to kung fu flicks unlike anything anyone has ever seen Uma Iconic performance as Beatrix Kiddo is a phenomenal portrayal of a female protagonist in action. And while she may not be a pure hero, Tarantino wrote the story in a way that has you cheering her on every second. The stylistic choices, blending different kung fu elements and mixing in an unforgettable score, almost made this our number one film, as it is a pure masterpiece in vengeful cinema.
3: Number one, Pulp Fiction.
1: Marvin, what do you make of all this? Man, I don't even have an opinion.
2: Well, you gotta have an opinion. I mean, do you think that God came down from heaven and stopped? The- oh, oh, what the fuck's happening in the house, Oh, man, I shot Marvin in the face. Why the fuck did you do that? Well, I didn't mean to do it was an accident. Oh, man, I seen some crazy ass shit in my time, but this just- Chill out, man. I told you it was an accident. You probably he went over a bump or hey, something. Hey, the car ain't hit no motherfucking bump. So, if you've listened, to this month's previous countdowns, there's no doubt what Tarantino film would be ranked number one on this list. Pulp Fiction is a touchstone film. It's undeniably entrenched into pop culture. Its characters are iconic. Its dialogue is so memorable, it's part of our lexicon now. The film still resonates today because it was so unlike anything we ever saw before it's released. Tarantino took what he learned from Reservoir Dogs and crafted a hard-boiled, self-referential tale that just hooks the audiences from the start with its non-linear storytelling. Tarantino has the balls to challenge his audience to chase these three out-of-sync narratives as they intertwine. We're on this journey along with Butch, Vincent, and Jules. And he knew that his neo-noir crime story would keep the audience hyper-focused on what was to come next. What's so impressive is this is his second film and his vision is already so clear. He's found his voice as an artist and a storyteller truly amazing.
1: This film and its style of telling a story out of order and yet still having a cohesive and well-toned narrative and through line really opened up my eyes to how strong a filmmaker Tarantino is and how uniquely distinct a film can be. While Reservoir Dogs was the blueprint to Tarantino's style that we all know and love, Pulp Fiction was the full masterpiece in all its glory. As Damon said before me, it's a cornerstone of pop culture and so deeply ingrained in society today. Each storyline is chock full of unforgettable moments that have inspired many of today's filmmakers and continues to be a reference of work beloved by it all. It is completely deserving of our number one spot. And I personally will always love this film. Hey, and with that said, that ends our Artist Spotlight for this month of Quentin Tarantino. If you had any different list than us, like um, you know your favorite moment, favorite character, or um, your favorite film, let us know in the comments below.
0: Accessing Artist Spotlight data for Steven Spielberg. Now playing Spielberg's best summer blockbusters.
1: Alright, so before
2: we get started with our countdown, let's go ahead and talk about why we chose Steven Spielberg as our first month-long Artist Spotlight. And I think what it comes down to for us is Steven Spielberg is the quintessential director. After more than 40 years of making movies, his influence on film is unquantifiable. He's literally the father of the blockbuster film. Like he did that. I mean, way back in 1975 with a movie about a freaking shark like the whole reason it feels weird right now with it being summer and there's no huge film to go see in the theaters i mean right or wrong no matter how you feel about it it's all because of spielberg like he's bounded by no genre for him it's all about the craft of storytelling his versatility might be his greatest strength I mean, he can give you a spectacle and leave you in awe where like he shows you something you've never seen before on film. And in the same year, he can give you a thought provoking period piece that makes you feel like you've been transported to another chapter in history. But I think where his true genius really lies um, is being able to connect the audience with his characters. His films all feel genuine because he recognizes, no matter how big the film, or how groundbreaking the effects you have, that characters are the heart of the story. From E.T. to Jurassic Park to Saving Private Ryan, the characters are the true magic of his filmmaking.
3: Now initializing artist spotlight picks. Number five, Hook.
2: He'll fight, he'll fly, and then, you will (laughs) die. When Captain James Hook kidnaps his children, an adult Peter Pan must return to Neverland and reclaim his youthful spirit in order to challenge his old enemy. This is directed, obviously, by Steven Spielberg, and it stars Dustin Hoffman, Robin Williams, and Julia Roberts.
1: Now now to start off, Damon, what, when did this movie come out? Yeah,
2: so Christian, this movie came out in fucking December. You already fucked up the countdown. It's supposed to be summer Spielberg movies. But Damon. you just couldn't resist talking about Hooks. So I, I gave you a pass. So make this good, man. Tell Dude. me why this movie means so much to you.
1: Well, it's it's nostalgia for nostalgia's sake. I mean, this movie is something I enjoyed as a kid growing up. Every summer, almost every season, pretty much. You know, this was one of those ones I had on tape, threw it in. You know, that's that was one of my traditions. You know, when I'm at home, you know, from school, didn't have anything to do. You know, you just throw in fucking tapes into the VHS and you just watch whatever all day long. Well, Hook was on that rotation. And I really love that movie. Um, You know, As an adult now, I can see how it's a little weird seeing Robin Williams, you know, in full leotard and everything. But you know, (laughs) growing up that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, growing up, uh, I really loved the portrayal of Peter Pan. I loved um, the Lost Boys. I loved everything in this movie. You know, um, I and my favorite, of course, is Hook. Um, Dustin Hoffman, you know, really fucking killed it for me. His portrayal of um, Hook is fucking phenomenal. Um, Every time he's on screen, it's just you know, entertaining from start to finish. And that's what I really got out of this. You know, most people see this movie as a Robin Williams classic, but I, you know, really get behind Dustin Hoffman as Hook. You know, I, I, I really love his portrayal in this movie. <laughs> Is that um, the reason
2: why you rocked the long hair, Christian?
1: Uh, absolutely. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Just don't go cutting off your uh, hand. Oh, well, I mean, I do <laughs> oh, no, know. That was an name. alligator, right?
1: That Yes. <laughs> okay, okay, my bad. I'll stay out of the gator pits, but <laughs>
2: yeah, you know, it is definitely outside of the box casting mm. with Hoffman. Yeah. You know, he's absolutely. not the first person I would have chosen as hook, but yeah, you know, it did. It did work.
1: Uh, Julia Roberts. Wasn't been my first choice for uh, um, Tinkerbell either, but she, she did her part. <laughs> no, absolutely. But Yeah. The movie just has a very, like as a kid, it was very, the way it was shot and everything had this very awesome, uh, surreal feel to it. You know, there's this like kind of glow on everything, when he's in um, Neverland, which I just thought it cinematically showed off uh, Spielberg's prowess of making this, you know, this very different, you know, childlike world compared to the human world we see in the movie, where it's very, you know, kind of dark and gloomy. You know, it is winter during this, um, during that time period, so you definitely get to pull in more of that like dark scenery that you would get from like. You know, any Christmas time.
2: It is good contrast, you know, film wise, like they start the movie off at night, you know, in the middle of winter and then you end up in Netherlands. So I'm sure that was by design.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, just all in all, I think this is a great children's movie. Um, and going forward, I promise the rest of the movies will be summer blockbusters. <laughs> <laughs> Already cheating, man.
3: <laughs> Number four, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade.
1: One Jones is not enough. Dad? Junior?
2: Don't call me that, please.
1: Follow me! I know the way! In 1938, Indiana Jones' father goes missing while pursuing the Holy Grail. Indy finds himself up against Adolf Hitler's Nazis all over again in a quest to obtain power. This was directed, of course, by Steven Spielberg and stars Harrison Ford and Sean Connery.
2: So, like... On paper, this movie sounds like a bad idea. Like, let's weigh down our badass action star by pairing him up with his elderly, bumbling father and let hijinks ensue. But that's not the case at all here. Uh, Instead, we get this memorable action film that by far is probably the funniest of the series mm. and a movie with like a lot of heart um so like after temple of doom like which isn't a bad movie by any means but it, it definitely felt like spielberg wanted to like revisit like the original formula that made Indiana jones like work um which is hunting down, like, a biblical relic and punching fucking Nazis in the <laughs> face. And God damn it, that's what we got here. Um, this is a fun adventure with some really, like, memorable action sequences. But, like, I think what makes this more than just, you know, an action film is the relationship with his father. Um, for the first time, Indiana, like, actually feels emotionally, like, vulnerable um you can tell how much his father means to him. And like that father-son theme is something that like Spielberg has like running strong through a lot of his different movies. The casting of Connery is just perfect. I mean, let's take James Frickin' Bond and put him in a you know in an Indiana Jones movie. And like he and Ford like have such fantastic chemistry that really just makes that theme of like father and son resonate. Um, I even love, like, the mini prequel that they do to, like, start things off. I mean, usually when something's so on the nose, like, giving you, like, the complete origin story of, like, you know, all, like, the iconic character <laughs> characteristics of Indiana Jones, it would be, like, too much for me. Mm-hmm. But, like, it didn't bother me at all. It was such a, like, charming little piece of filmmaking that I felt like it actually worked.
1: No, I definitely agree. I feel like if someone had tried to attempt this today, it wouldn't work nearly as well as how Spielberg handled it back then. Um, You know, I... I would say like whenever we do see, you know, like that almost brings me to like Rise of Skywalker level of like, you know, trying to explain things. In some in some points or even you know, like, like Solo, <laughs> Solo, <Exactly. laughs> where we actually
2: find out how he got the, the Solo name. Uh-huh. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. absurd. But no, I, I loved it. And River Phoenix is fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, such a ta- young, talented actor gone
1: way too soon. No, I absolutely agree with what you were saying. I definitely think this deserves to be on uh, Spielberg's top list. All right, David. Well, our number three pick for our favorite Spielberg summer blockbuster is none other than Jurassic Park. Uh. Put your your
0: head between your knees.
1: (laughs) Dr. Grant,
2: my dear Dr. Sattler, welcome to Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is bona fide movie magic. This is Spielberg, the magician, giving us the breathtaking spectacle in the form of dinosaurs come to life. I remember those like first initial trailers. They only give you a hint of what you were in store for. They saved like the true awe of this film for the audiences in the theaters. So you got it like opening night, um, which is genius. And, nowadays rare what the audience got, by the way was the perfect marriage between Spielberg's ingenuity Stan Winston's beautiful practical work and ILM's like groundbreaking visual effects this is like the first time I could remember ever hearing the term CGI this is one of those like rare moments in history where you can like pinpoint the game truly changing And you know, like, one of the most amazing aspects of this film is it still holds up. Because, like, Spielberg, he understood less is more. Um, They used practical effects when they needed to, and then they enhanced it with CGI, so they didn't overtax it. Like, I read somewhere, like, in total, there are about... 14 minutes of actual visual effects on screen, and only four minutes are actually like completely CGI. But that's like, was just enough to like usher in this new age into like Hollywood. You know, good or bad, CGI was here to stay. Uh, with that being said, this movie is not just eye candy, it's got like Spielberg's storytelling and his nuances. Uh, His magic dust, if you will, like sprinkled all over it. I mean, yes, it's definitely not a character piece, but Spielberg takes us on a wild ride and there's just some fantastic action sequences and r- just a really strong ensemble cast. Like every actor brought their A-game, but like none like more so than Jeff fucking Goldblum. He's playing this like rock star math I guess, um, who almost steals the show in a film, like, filled with these groundbreaking effects, like, first of their kind, and giant fucking dinosaurs running around. And it's, like, Goldblum that, like, the audience is, like, totally, like, drawn to and hanging on as every word. And, and, like, speaking of, like, almost stealing the show, too, like... The Velociraptors. How terrifying are the raptors in this movie? We're treated to almost like a mini horror film, like halfway through this film. You know, Spielberg just building this like super unforgettable, intense scene. Um, that's actually like one of the first things I think about whenever someone brings this film up. Um, but, you know, to boil it all down and sum it all up. Yeah, this film actually might be higher on my list of Spielberg blockbusters if it had more of that, like, nostalgic thing going for it. You know, for me, like, I saw this film when I was in high school. So I know, like, our last two picks, like, I was much younger when I watched them. So it definitely, they have the benefit of that, like, nostalgic fuel, you know, behind it. So, but, yeah, you know, I love this film.
1: Yeah, I have to agree. Um, I mean, for me, there's definitely a ton of nostalgia with this. Uh, You know, I I grew up. I was literally born the year after this movie came out, so this was kind of like my first like experience to even get to see dinosaurs. Like, I remember my first time, you know, going to uh, see Sue because I live in Illinois and everything like that. So I consider that the same, you know, feeling as the first time I got to see uh, Jurassic Park, which you know, it's getting to see these dinosaurs full color and live and motion and everything like that you know this really was a masterpiece of effects for its time um and i really like i i'll probably always remember this growing up and loving it as a kid you know it did terrify the hell out of me because there you know the raptors are fucking scary as shit yes, like yes a five-year-old <laughs> and i thought that was a really good blend of you know childhood wonder meets horror as well you know, i just thought this was a really well done story um and, you know, it's disappointing that the sequels don't live up to the same charm as the first one. No, they don't. But um, <laughs> and they're still popping them out for some reason. <laughs> You're right. But nothing can really touch this film. You know, I, this is something I could watch at any given weekend and still enjoy. This was a m- masterful summer blockbuster. At number two, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark.
2: A film from Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. This was really difficult. I love me some Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, this is the first movie I can remember actually seeing in the theater, and it definitely left a mark in my mind. It's the perfect action adventure film. I mean, Indiana Jones as a character is the epitome of cool. Like, he's willing to do whatever it takes to save the day. And that's what makes him different than other heroes, especially at that time. He'll bring a gun to a knife fight. He'll melt fucking Nazis' faces off if he has to. He's always way overconfident and way over his head, but that's part of his charm because he always ends up getting out of whatever jam he gets himself into. You know, like, he always seems like he knows something we do don't and you know i feel like that's one of the reasons he's one of the greatest characters in film history a professor by day and an ass kicking archaeologist the rest of the time he's got this whole like superhero dual identity thing going you know and it just works indian jones like came out of spielberg's like quest to do a james bond film George Lucas you know came up with the character to help like you know just satisfy this obsession Um, between these two artists and the performance of you know Harrison Ford it's hard to imagine this not working out and you know it it did and well at least until Crystal Skull but that's neither here nor there Um, this is the first time too, like we meet Indiana Jones And if you think about it, they don't bother giving us an origin story. Hell, you know, we don't get that until the third film. They drop us right in the middle of all the action. And one of the most iconic opening sequences of all time. If you think about it, you know, that boulder scene has been like parodied and spoofed and paid homage to hundreds of times at this point. But it's just the perfect introduction to who Indiana Jones is as a character. Like, you get everything you need to know about Indiana Jones in that sequence. Um, But it's not a one-man show by any means. Like, I think a lot of people forget about how great the character Marion is. You know, like another George Lucas creation, Princess Leia, Marion is no damsel in distress. Like, she is a true badass. You know, drinking motherfuckers underneath the table. Like, she's got a hell of a punch, and she's not gonna sit around and wait to be saved. In the 80s, and honestly, like, for decades afterwards, we didn't get many female characters like Marion, and that's just a shame. You know, this is just another example. Like, this film is another example of Spielberg setting the bar high for a genre. And Yes, you know, some other films may have exceeded it in the action or the adventure department, but those movies might not exist without this film, and no film in my mind has matched the charm, and I think that's what's its greatest strength. And definitely makes it one of, like, Spielberg's greatest
1: films. So like you mentioned, we both kind of you know grew up in a—oh, I grew up way further in a very far post-indie world where, you know, you see their influences in all the adventure movies, you know, out there. You know, even in video games, you know, you have Tomb Raider and Uncharted series. And, you know, while those are great experiences and they really take so much from Indiana Jones— you're right. They don't. Uh, they don't hold a torch to that series, uh, or that the movie in general. You know, Spielberg really, you know, caught magic with this film, and you know, it's something that will always be remembered and cherished. Uh, I know you brought up uh, the boulder scene, but I think the thing that that brought, like, that really sold me on him as a character was, you know, him bringing a gun to a sword fight. Um, I, that's like the most iconic thing that comes to my mind whenever I think of. Um, Indiana Jones, Spielberg's work with Harrison Ford throughout the film, you know, really shows wit and adventure in a very, I would I would say, in a light manner where it stays focused on entertaining the viewer rather than like bogging them down consistently with exposition and you know just a lot of things that we see in modern adventure stories where it just you know really slows down the film trying to explain to you how all this works and why we're doing this, whereas you know this film just gives you the adventure and makes you laugh throughout the entire experience that's why i completely love this you know spielberg really found a way to focus on the entertainment and that's what he's been a master at for years uh you know it's he was able to take the you know the best out of this picture possible and really put it out there on the big screen and i appreciate that work that he was able to put in and you know even like We're going to talk about uh, another movie after this where he had even less to work with and still made such a perfect, you know, thing out of it. Um, And I think what we got with Indiana Jones really um, personifies his skill as a filmmaker. And with that, that leads us into our number one pick for Spielberg's greatest summer blockbusters,
2: Jaws. Alive today, who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill a mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. So it all started here the first summer blockbuster, if not the first big blockbuster film. Um, You know, the the term blockbuster was coined, you know, from the crowd, like literally lining up around the block to get into the theater to see a film. Um, That's what Spielberg brought to us here. I mean, this was the rise of Spielberg. With this film's success, he was able to have Final Cut and bring us, like, this legendary resume of films, you know, that we've gotten throughout the decade. It it, it all started here. So, you know, when I first saw this film, I was vacationing at my grandmother's house in um, Key Largo. And I remember this distinctly because it was hot as all hell. And like one of the selling points of going on this like month long vacation and being from Chicago was that we got to swim daily um, cause she was right on the water. You know, and that, that, that was, you know, something that I look forward to all year long until I saw this film <laughs> afterwards. I was so absolutely terrified. I didn't even want to go on the dock, let alone go swimming. When I eventually got back into the water, and it took a couple of days. I never truly felt safe the rest of the vacation, and I'll be honest, like I remember the night after this like movie, I didn't even want to take a shower, which makes absolutely no sense, like the, the shark was going to come through the drain to get me, but that that's the effect this movie had on me. Um, what Spielberg crafted with Jaws was just a master class in suspense. He starts off the film with the introduction of the shark and we witness the horror that Jaws is capable of in the opening scene without seeing anything. Um, This is all designed to just let you know, right off the bat, no one is safe. And like not being able to see the shark effectively lets Spielberg tap into the theater of the mind. I mean, once again, less is more. What we come up with in our own imagination is always going to be just as scary, if not more so than what he can show us. Um, That and it keeps us effectively on the edge of our seats throughout the entire film until the end where like it just crescendos like intention, you know, and we finally get to see Jaws in its full glory. But like, once again, necessity is the mother of all invention like we all know the story behind bruce the shark you know nicknamed after spielberg's lawyer um this shark this mechanical shark it didn't fucking work um and spielberg you know feared for the the film after this like he didn't know if they were going to be able to go on so spielberg had to improvise He already planned on not showing the shark for the first half of the movie, but he had to reach even deeper and build tension with his incredible storytelling and mesmerizing performances. Also, shot selection that like worked as like smoke and mirrors, you know, and editing to make up for this broken ass shark. He leaned into scenes with like a Hitchcockian flair, like, you know, the zoom on the beach, you know, the zoom in on the beach uh, on Sheriff Brody um, is just the perfect example of this. It lets you become one with the character in that moment. You experience what he's experiencing. It's Hitchcock 101. It can't be overstated, like, you know, the performances are absolutely key, it's key in any Spielberg film. Um, you know, he, he always takes the time and lets you get invested in these characters because we get to live with them. Um, we feel for Sheriff Brody because we've seen him with his family. And through like Roy Schreider's just amazing performance, we can feel like his sense of guilt over every life lost that summer the responsibility that like weighs on him so heavy and like even though like he's got all this like political pressure to like keep the beaches open um, you know, trying to sway his decision making, he's not willing to compromise his moral code. Just a fantastic character. Um, Richard Dreyfus is pure joy as he like energizes this film with this like neurotic like energy and passion, like as a scientist who's trying to save the day, but at the same time, he's trying to prove himself worthy of just this saltiest sea dog of them all, quit. Robert Shaw gives one of the best performances, I believe, in the history of film, bar none. Um, And then with the Indianapolis speech being one of my favorite scenes of all time. I mean, Quint's haunting shark story terrified me um, as a kid. It it still works today. I found it absolutely riveting. Um, it, It almost scared me more than the entire movie itself. But like, let's not forget too, like, you know, the real glue that holds this film together is John Williams' score. It's one of the most iconic pieces of music of all time. People who've never seen this film know this music and what it means. It's the driving force of like the tension, like escalating in every scene to like a fever pitch it truly is unrelenting and it's you know one of the many reasons this film is my favorite spielberg film of all time
1: i mean before i get into it man that was probably one of the most beautiful things you've ever said on my (laughs) about a movie ever i feel that passionately about this movie exactly But all right, here, let me get into it. You know, it's funny that you brought up your grandmother because my grandmother actually, who was, you know, God rest her soul, the most crazy Christian woman I've ever met, uh, was so strict in her life and you wouldn't think that she would like anything scary. But for some reason, she loved you know, underwater monsters, like everything from Lake Placid to Jaws. And, you know, that was kind of like my experience. She, me and her would like watch this movie almost every time I would come to visit, you know, that and Lake Placid. And it was just like, that's that experience I got to have with her. Uh, And that's, that's why, you know, that's the nostalgia I get from it but um you know what you said with you know how he was able to hide the shark i don't even remember the, that much you know you know i don't when i think about the movie i think about how great you know the shark attack was and how like awesome that like little moment where they actually fight it for a second is uh, you know I, I don't ever think about how little the fucking shark is in the movie um but even so when you go back and you watch it you see fear and terror through character performances and well-written story and that's so it's it's missing today you know there's so much more um, focus on spectacle rather than actually just getting out these great performances and great of um, it's it just starts on the page david it starts with a fucking script and you just don't see it that much anymore with horror you know i I mean i grew up with fucking saw you know that that's mostly spectacle Uh, after the first one it's it's fucking just hey what kind of limbs can we cut off in this movie you know there's not enough suspense and stuff with horror and that's i mean that's something we talk about with halloween and all these other horror films And, you know, just what Spielberg was able to do with so little shark in a shark movie is so fucking impressive. Um, What's even more disappointing is that directors that took the Jaws name decided to just get rid of most of that idea of built suspense and horror and fucking just went for that spectacle of a giant shark attacking people. You know, all the I don't know if you've seen them, man, but these are some shit movies. (laughs) Uh, jaws 3d if you if you need something to laugh at man that's the film to watch but you know um spielberg really captured something great lightning in a bottle with jaws and i definitely agree that this is the summer blockbuster and some and i mean we're seeing it today you know it killed the box office again out of nowhere <laughs> so i mean he is you know king of the summer blockbuster Well, that does it for this week. As a friendly reminder, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, leave a five-star review. It really helps new listeners to find the podcast and for us to continue to grow. Also, if you like the stories from this week's episode and want to keep up to date with the show, follow us on social media at Amazing Nerd Show or stop by TheAmazingNerdShow.com. And
2: hey, to support the show further and get additional weekly content, you can subscribe to us now on
1: Patreon. Just follow the link in the show notes. Also, if you want to rep some Nerd Show swag, you can head over to tpublic.com to find t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional Nerd Show
2: swag as long as you live in the United States. All right, make sure to join us next week as we talk
1: all the latest news and rumors in nerd culture. And whatever's going on in the world of wrestling. My name's Christian. And my name's David. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show.
0: want to speak to a grown-up! All grown-ups are pirates! Excuse me? We kill pirates. I'm not a pirate. So happens, I am a lawyer. Kill the lawyer! Kill Kill the the lawyer! I'm not that kind of lawyer.